Hey folks, thanks for checking out Missio Church in Manor, Iowa. You are listening to audio recorded at our Sunday morning service. If you'd like any more information on the gospel or would like to learn more about Missio Church, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Missio Mount Air. I was thinking this week about this, you know, th- this idea of the Advent series that we're going through, and it's it's... We've entitled it The Longed For Son. And our hope is, is that we can, can look at this, this idea of longing uh, and, and trace it through the scriptures. There's a lot of longing in the scriptures. And there's, there, there are a few key longed for sons in the scriptures. And one of the things that we believe as a church is we, we believe here that Jesus Christ uh, is, is the word made flesh and that all scripture reveals him, points to him because he is, uh, you know, he, he's the living word. He, he is God incarnate. And so everything, uh, you know, uh, w- one of our favorite resources that we've used as a family and we, we, we talk about it here at our church, it's not the only one, but it, we love the Jesus Storybook Bible. We would read it all the time to our kids. We would listen to David Suchet as we would drive down the road. I could still hear his awesome reading as he's reading these stories. And one of the, or the primary theme of the Jesus Storybook Bible is every story whispers his name because Jesus Christ is the centerpiece of history. He is the centerpiece of life. He is the one through whom all things were created. It it was made uh, through him, it was made by him, and it was made for him. And so as we think about these longed for sons, uh, Darren last week looked at Genesis chapter 3, which is a, a monumental first promise. It's, uh, many people, the, the theological term is the proto-euangelion. I'm used that this, this year uh, while you're hanging out with your friends. Uh, but what it simply means is the pre-gospel, or like the first gospel where God looks at, at fallen Eve in that moment where God comes after mankind rebelled against God. And now this, this peace with God that we had from the beginning was now broken. And now when, you know, where, where we were live, God made us to live in relationship with him and to represent him on the earth and to, and to be a relationship of peace that, that Adam and Eve walked with God. They would run to God. That, you know, like, like you think of dads when you'd walk in at the end of a day and what, what was the greatest sound you'd hear? Your kids, Daddy! I don't hear that anymore. Um, I just get a lot of, hey, Dad. <laughs> Maybe on a good day, right? Um, but, but now, because of rebellion, that, that peaceful, joyful relationship is now one of fear. And Adam and Eve are hiding. And they're terrified. And they start to blame one another for what happened. And God being good and God being just, he could not just let that slide. Because we don't want judges to not judge the law, right? God, to be holy, has to still judge his law, and that brought condemnation to mankind. And in the midst of that tragic moment, we see amazing seeds of grace, where God says to Eve, or I'm sorry, says to the serpent who is our deceiver, says to the serpent that from 
uh, the seed of a woman, one will come who will be our deliverer. He will receive a, 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 a significant wound from the serpent. But this child will crush the head. And this, this idea of one coming from a woman led to the nation of Israel longing for who is that going to be? Who will be the seed of the woman? And so we're going to look at, at one of those significant steps today when we look at 1 Samuel. But my heart today, I'll be honest, like I, I've been going back and forth on this, is, you know, uh, I really want to speak as best as I can with my frail words and my small mind pastorally to our hearts. Like we could dive into like the, uh, the strong exegetical aspects of this passage, which, are, which they're there, right? We can look at, you know, the rich history of things that are there. But, but I think that there's a strongly pastoral message that God can give to us through this chapter. Because as I think about Christmas time, like I, lo I do, I love Christmas I'm a sentimentalist. I, you know, I, I like to save things. I, you know, I, I, I have some, a rocking chair that, you know, my dad had and his grandmother or his mother had and his mother's mother's had, you know, whatever it is. Like, it, it's old. And I look at it and I just love it. Like, I, you know, it's just, it means a lot to me. And, you know, as we pull out Christmas ornaments, right? Like, I, you know, we all look at these ornaments and we remember, oh, do you remember when Evan made this? Oh, do you remember when, when my mother-in-law gave me that? Like each ornament kind of symbolizes something, doesn't it? Like, you, you know, we listen to songs. You know, like I think, you know, a, a lot of, of uh, things that are around this time, there, there's like this exciting joy, but there's also a bit of nostalgia and longing, isn't there? Because so much reminds us of things we don't have anymore, doesn't it? You know, I'll be honest, like every, for the last four or five years that we've come into Christmas, uh, I, I, I love the fact that, that, that Christmas is here. I love all the holly jolly. I love to hear Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin sing his songs. Uh, but, but I also find myself thinking more and more about people I miss. You know, I'm hanging up lights on my porch and I'm, reminding, I'm being reminded of my father and his exterior illumination abilities. And I just miss my dad. And, and as I think about these things, you know, think about how we live in the midst of two advents, right? It's what Darren talked about last week. There's an already aspect, but there's also a really significant not yet, isn't there? Think of all the best movies around this time that we watch. I was even thinking about this. Even Elf has this kind of desire and longing in it. He wants a dad. <laughs> he just wants his dad to love him. At the end of the day, I love you, I love you, I love you. <laughs> right, right. He, he just wants his dad to love him, right? He wants to find his place in the world. And as funny as it is, you know, and it is really funny, but like watch it from a different point of view and you do see a very heartfelt longing type message. Think of the movie, It's a Wonderful Life, right? Here's a guy that at the end of the day is longing to have meaning, is longing for significance and feel that he's wasted his life. Think of, think, think of you know, I'll be honest, I've never seen the movie White Christmas, so I don't know how to talk, don't judge, I know, I know, I'm trying to fix it, sorry. 
You know, but I, I just think about all these things, and, and we have so much longing. And, and, and I'll be honest, in 20, almost 22 years of full-time ministry, I've talked to rich and poor. I've been around and I've talked to men and women, young and old, those that seem to have it all together, those that stand on rugged individualism and those who are just uh, heavy laden with the burdens of life. And here's one thing that I think, I, I really do believe this is a hill I'll die on. We all live a life of longing somehow. We all live a life of longing expressed in some way. This is a part of life. And that's because this world is not sufficient. This world is not the world that God intended. One of the mistakes that we can make, and you see this, all, I'll be honest, like, like we see this a lot. Like, like we look at the world around us and we think this is how God made it. And so we think like, well, God made me this way. He didn't. This is, we're not what God intended. Now, residue of who he made us to be still exists. We are still in his image. Uh, that, gives every, that, that gives every image bearer value, whether you are newly conceived in the womb or you are at the late stages of life. The, the Christians throughout history have valued human life, and may we continue to do so. Because we are made in the image of God, which gives all of us dignity. It gives all of us value. It means that, there's, that we were made on purpose for a purpose. And yet that image has been marred. It has been warped. And that has also then, because of our warping, the scriptures teach us, the rest of the created order has been warped. So this world is not what God intended it to be. I, I remember, and, and so that leaves us with a longing. This idea of longing, Miriam Webster defines it this way. It's a strong desire, especially for something unattainable. Boy, does that express something living in a fallen world, doesn't it? We have this strong desire for the world to be made right. We have this strong desire that my life would matter. We have this strong desire that there would be some kind of purpose to the hurt and the pain that I've gone through. We have a strong desire to, 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 to process loss, don't we? We have a strong desire to, to know, you know, is my life nothing more than, than, than just time slipping through my fingers and there's nothing else beyond that? You know, this idea of nihilism, you've ever heard of nihilism? That's what the nihilistic view is. Uh, you know, it just believes there's no point to anything. It's never going to go anywhere. Time just slips through your fingers, and at the end, it's done. And at the end of the day, I really, we don't believe that in our heart, do we? I mean, really, we know there's meaning to life. And so we want to be able to process life, not as, not as if it's untethered to something, because we have a desire to be in a place that's whole. To be in a place, I remember, you know, both times, uh, and I'm sorry I keep bringing this up, these are just like monumental moments in my life. You know, like, like when I thought, of, think, think about the loss of my dad and I walked away from the grave, I looked at my wife and I said, I just long for the day when the passage of time won't mean anything anymore. Because in many, you know, I, I look at my dog. I love my dog. And I look at her and I already see her with a tinge of sadness. 
because I know where that's going to end. And I'm tired of that. Are you tired of that? And so here we come. We have longing. We have a strong desire, especially for something unattainable. Because I think the older we get, we realize, I really can't make this world whole. I can't really make my own heart whole. I can't really make my kid's life whole. There's some pain that will happen in life. Those of you who are younger, you may have already experienced this, but I promise you there will be a day when you will come up against something that is so sad and so painful and you have no ability to do anything about it. And it will remind you that you are not sufficient. And so we want a place that's sufficient. We want a world made whole. We want something, and it seems so unattainable. It's like we live in the midst of two things, right? Just like we live in the midst of the first advent of Christ and the second advent of Christ, we live with this desire of things to be made right, that we're not satisfied that my heart isn't. And yet it seems horribly unattainable that it will never be. And in comes the gospel. This is why it is such good news. But what do we do with longing? Darren asked a great question last week. What does putting our longing in the right place look like? Because we're going to put it somewhere. We're going to do something. Some of us will just fall apart in despair. Some of us will just buckle down and work even harder. Some of us will try to manage and control every relationship around us. And some of us will do like, Jesus, take the wheel. And just the car is going to spin out of control. Sorry you had to hear that. <laughs> that wasn't in my notes. <laughs> And it's, just, and it's like this weird faith that I don't even really know what it means. And the car, like, we're like, Jesus, you're supposed to take the wheel as the car's doing this. <laughs> so what do we do with it? And I think that we see a beautiful but yet very real picture in 1 Samuel chapter 1. So what, where we come to in 1 Samuel is just to give a very high, high quick historical snapshot so if you remember, we've been going through Genesis, right? So in Genesis, God is, is, is redeeming the world from the brokenness of sin. And the first work of God in redeeming the world is redeeming a people to himself. When he's done redeeming a people to himself, then he will come and make all things right. Right, And so he makes this promise. He calls a man named Abraham, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a son, and I'm, through you I'm going to create the, this beautiful nation that I'm going to protect, that's going to be mine, that I'm going to bless, and you're going to be a blessing, and all this stuff. Right, And then it passes to, to his son Isaac, and then it passes to Isaac's younger son Jacob, and then Jacob has all these sons, and then from these sons come this nation of Israel. And I, I know this is a spoiler alert, but they're going to end up in Egypt. Egypt, <laughs> right? And then in Egypt, they're going to come under the bondage of slavery. And for 400 years, Egypt is going to oppress them. 
And they are not, they, they are going to people, they're going to be a people that it seems as if God had abandoned them. This great nation now under the thumb of seemingly the world's power. And yet God sends a deliverer. It's a man named Moses. And Moses is the man that God chooses to work through. And through a, a, a series of amazing events, God delivers his people from slavery by his work, not theirs. Through his chosen deliverer, in his timing. And he brings them into a land that he promised Abraham over you know, hundreds of years earlier. And so then they find themselves in this land. In the book of Joshua, they conquer the land. They don't conquer it perfectly. We'll get into that at some point. But then, then what happens is after they conquer the land and all the 12 tribes of Israel kind of get their section of the land, and then they're just kind of there, and then we come into what's called the book of Judges. And Judges is a train wreck of a book in many ways, but it's also a very hopeful book because what we see happen is the nation of Israel, there's a phrase that is said over and over and over and over again, and it's this, the people of the land did what was right in their own eyes. That's how the book ends. You know, it says, actually, it says it this way. Uh, no, that's Ruth. Um, it says at the end of, of Judges, it says, in these days there was no king in Israel Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And it led to chaos. There were seasons of peace, but there was a whole lot of chaos. And it seems as if Israel was delivered into this land and it was just going to be this endless cycle of rebellion, wickedness, hardship. Like there's some weird, terrible stuff that happens in the book of Judges. And so it is at kind of the end, the book of Ruth is in the middle of the judges narrative. And so we come to the book of Samuel and the, the nation has been plagued with these crazy seasons of judges and doing wickedness and all this stuff. Again, this desire like, wait a minute, this is the promised land that we were supposed to get. There's longing happening. And then we come into first Samuel chapter one and we meet a woman named Hannah. Hannah is the wife of a man whose name is, uh, sorry, hold on one second, Elkanah. And Elkanah lived in a portion of the promised land, and Elkanah had two wives. It seems as if uh, in, the, in the text that Hannah was Elkanah's first wife, and then he got a second wife whose name was Penina. Penina had children. Hannah had none. And this was a scourge on Hannah's life. And Penina would ridicule Hannah because she had children and Hannah did not. And it led to this great distress. And year after year, um, what you would see is that Elkanah would take his family and they would go to this place called Shiloh where the tabernacle was and they would offer sacrifices to the Lord there. And what you see is this woman named Hannah who is being ridiculed by her rival Penina and just devastating her that you're barren, you're forsaken. Like you just imagine because childbearing for a woman in Israel was a significant thing on a number of levels. Number one, uh, just the nature of being a, a, a woman, I'm learning, is to, to, to bring forth a child, right? To hold your child, right? There's just something godly and beautiful about having your child as a mom I, as I watch my wife with her children. 
But then, at this, but, but then you add to that. So, so, you know, God commanded us to be fruitful and multiply. So, so not having a child is almost like a denial of the nature that God has given to us. And number two, it, it's like you're cut off from this mandate that God had given to mankind to be fruitful and multiply. You feel cursed. But then on the other side, remember God's promise that from the seed of a woman, one will come who will deliver us. And if you can't have a child, it's like you're cut off from that promise. It's like, it's just shame upon shame upon shame upon shame. And this longing occurs in her heart. And, Eve, and this longing could not be satisfied here on earth. Her husband even loved her well. He didn't forsake her for not having a child. The scriptures tell us, in fact, he loved her uniquely and specially. And when he would go and offer the offering on behalf of his family, part of what you would do is you would take some of that offering and you would eat it and you would consume it yourself. And it said that he would give uh, Hannah a double portion, kind of like, hey, I know you're struggling, but I still love you. I still care for you. But yet her heart could not be satisfied. And in verse 8 of chapter 1, Elkanah, her husband, said to her when he notices, like, no matter what I do, you, I can't satisfy this in you. No matter what I do, he says to her, uh, Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? You know, Penina's ridiculing her. Her shame is constantly on display. This longing is happening in her heart. Elkanah's trying to do everything he can to appease her. And he's like, why do you weep? And why are you not eating? Why is your heart sad? And then he even says, am I not more to you than 10 sons? Like, I'm your husband and I love you. But yet none of that is enough for Hannah. And it says in verse 9, after they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, which is where the, they went to worship, it says that Hannah arose and there was a man named Eli the priest who was sitting beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. And listen to what Hannah does here. It says she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. Sorry, that's not on there. We'll get there. This is where Hannah finds herself. She is so broken by life, so broken by her circumstances, so broken with the longing that is in her heart and everything around her seems to mock her. She can't even get out of her own household without her sister wife mocking her. Another reason why plural marriage doesn't work. Bible never really shows that it works, by the way. <laughs> And it leads her to a place where she, the only thing she thinks she can think to do, there is no hope for her in this world. There is no comfort, even in the arms of her husband. The only thing that she can do is flee to the temple of the Lord. And when she goes, she is deeply distressed. And all she could do is pray while she weeps bitterly. Have you ever been there? And as she prays, she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. And as she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. So that's the, the, the priest who's sitting there and he's watching this happen. And I find this fascinating. This priest who sees this woman come and, and here's what happens. It says, Hannah was speaking in her heart 
and only her lips moved. Have you ever prayed that hard before? Where you're praying silently, but your lips are going, that's what Hannah is doing, and Eli is observing this. And I, it's just crazy what happens here. Uh, it says, therefore, therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. <laughs> this woman has come to the temple, and she's drunk. She's not even finding comfort in the servant of God here. <laughs> and then he says to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. Here's the deal. As a pastor, if I get it wrong, have mercy on me. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. No doubt that's what everything in the world tells her she is. You're a worthless woman. And she's like, Please don't see me this way. I'm crying out to the Lord. For all along, I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Do you see the strength of emotion and the longing and the lamenting that is happening in Hannah's life? Because Hannah had an unfulfilled desire that seemed unattainable to her. I'm cut off from God's commands. I'm cut off from the promise of even participating in his redemptive mission. I am cut off. I am scorned in my house. Nothing is satisfying me. And even the priest of God thinks I'm a drunken, worthless woman. And what that did is Hannah was a woman who longed. And Hannah's longing had a bitter taste. But Hannah's longing brought her to God. I love what the expositor's commentary says here. It says, now, this is going to be strange to hear with our ears. Her trials had the happy effect of sending her to God. Trials, we talk about this as coaches, right? Adversity with a team does one of two things. It causes teams to crumble or it causes teams to get stronger. And trials in life, I want you to think about this for a minute. The trials we face in life from a biblical perspective are really meant primarily to do one thing, draw us to the Lord. But what can happen is, is for us, one of two things. We get bitter, and we blame, and we, and we woe is me, and we, we isolate, and we think no one else goes through what I'm going through, and it causes us to be, to be this isolated thing. No one understands my plight. No one understands how hard my life is, and it becomes this oppressive downward spiral that leads to bitterness taking a deep root, which leads to a perpetual heart of anger and I hate everything around me, and I hate everyone around me because I'm unique. I'm the only one who struggles. And what we see in the scriptures is we all struggle. And what we see in Hannah is that that hardship did not cause her to be bitter. It caused her to flee to the Lord. 
and we get a picture of what, because what happens is, is that it, her longing led to lament. And how we lament is an expression of our faith. We all lament, right? Even the bitter lament. But in the words we speak in all our lament, that's where our faith is found. And what we see is that biblical lament expresses our faith. Though it makes no sense, I trust the Lord. And this is what we see Hannah doing. I'm going to the Lord. I have no appeal in this world. I have no real hope in this world. I'm only going to God. And even in her prayer, oh Lord, you know my affliction. Oh God, you know how hard my life is. Please remember me. If you want to know how to lament from a biblical standpoint, look no further than the book of Psalms. Did you know one third of the Psalms are lament Psalms? Because lamenting is a part of life. And David, who was a mighty warrior, who fought in battle so much so he was a victorious king that, that they would sing about him. David slayed his tens of thousands, right? He is that warrior dude. He lamented. And we read words like that in the Psalms. And what we find is a pattern in biblical lament. And the first pattern is, the, the first step in the pattern is this, is we go to God. That's the first step. You can look at a psalm like Psalm 77, which is a great psalm of lament. And the first place is I'm not going to wallow in my despair on my own. I'm not going to complain for complaining's sake. I'm not going to think I'm the only person that goes through this and no one understands and make this anger and bitterness happen. No, I am going to put that aside and I'm going to go right to God himself for where else can I go? And then the second thing we see in biblical lament is we express our struggle to God. Oh, learn the language of lament. This is what Hannah does. See my plight. This is what's going on. This is my struggle. You read Psalms like Psalm 88, and it's very like, like, like no hold back lamenting and expressing grief. I feel abandoned. I feel frustrated. I'm not even sure you're there, God. I just don't understand what's happening in my life. My soul is grieved to the point of death. Everyone seems to have forsaken me. Where the heck are you, God? Death has been a better friend to me than you, God, we read. God is not afraid of your hard, real, honest struggle. The reality is we're all going to share it anyway. And the scriptures say, go to God and express it to him. And then the, second, and then the third step in biblical lament is we ask for help. Because this is the situation I'm in. You're the only one I can come to for help. And so you read Psalm, deliver me, vindicate me, help me, sustain me. Hannah, please give me a child. I just want to, give me a son. But then the fourth step of biblical lament is we recall God's character and promises. You see this all through the Psalms. God, I'm coming to you. I'm telling you my struggle. I'm asking you for help. But this is who I know you are. 
You're faithful. You're good. You're just. You're righteous. You're holy. You don't forsake your people. You hear my prayers. And I'm going to keep coming to you. I'm going to keep expressing my thoughts. I'm going to keep asking for help. I'm going to wait on you because I know you're good. I know you're holy. I know you love me. Your love is steadfast. I know your ways are higher than mine. Lead me to the rock that is higher than me. All this stuff. And so we wait. And Hannah's vow shows her when she says, here's my plight. Please remember me. Give me a son. And then she says, and I'll give him back to you. I'll give him back to you all the days of his life. And what we see in Hannah's vow is it shows that her longing was rooted in something bigger than just the alleviation of her own desires and situation. Yes, she deeply wanted a son, but more than anything, I think that vow and what we'll see here in a second is she wanted God to be glorified and her life to be an instrument of that. So even if you give me this son, God, I don't need him for me. I'll give him to you fully for your service and for your purposes for whatever you want to do God here's my longing here's my lament here's my plea and here's my life do what you will and we see that the Lord as we continue on satisfied her desire he gives her a son and they name him Samuel Samuel is an amazing uh, historical figure in the life of Israel because what Samuel does is he's the first prophet in the promised land who helps the, the nation of Israel move from this chaotic time of the judges to transitioning into a kingdom led by a godly king that will ultimately find its culmination in David. And Samuel is the one that stands in the gap. So God uses this struggle and suffering and longing in Hannah's life and works in a way that, yes, meets her at the deepest possible level of her need and her cry, but does so not just for her good as if it's a cul-de-sac with no outlet. He does it for a blessing that moves his redemptive plan forward that leads to King David, who is the predecessor of King Jesus. And this is where you find Samuel chapter 2, where Hannah goes back after she has Samuel. She, she weans him and she fulfills her vow and she brings him to the temple of God and says, here he is, God. He's all yours. And what we see in her prayer of praise in 1 Samuel chapter 2 is you see in these 10 verses this amazing hymn of praise. Not of a mother lamenting she has to leave her child in the hands of God, but puts that child in the context of her own personal relationship with him and the future of God's work in his people in the world. And the song she says here echoes the song we hear John the Baptist's mom sing. And it echoes what Mary sings after Christ is conceived in her womb because these three women, Hannah, Elizabeth and Mary, God uses to give birth to a child in a womb that should have no life. He brings life. And with each life, he moves redemptive history forward for the good of his people. 
And so in, so you see her say in Hannah's prayer, and Hannah prayed, my heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and, and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Notice in this prayer, Hannah in many ways doesn't even just rejoice over Samuel. She rejoices in the God who gave her Samuel. And she rejoices in the work that this God will do. And she almost takes this posture of, 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 of not only this is what God is doing for me, but I'm representative of what God is doing for all of his people. And here's what he does. He is the strength of our salvation. He is the God who has brought us near. We, he is our greatest joy. We know there's no one like him and he cares for the needy and will bring right justice on the earth. And she rejoices in the establishment of a future king one day who will bring equity and right judgment to the world. What we see as we close is that Hannah was a woman in longing who God met that longing with the birth of a son. And that son was used for something so much bigger in her life and in the life of her people. And in many ways, Hannah is representative of the whole nation of Israel, who when they lived in the promised land still didn't get it right. And we come to a point where, where Israel was exiled from the land because of their sin, because they couldn't get it right. Samuel was not the ultimate child to be longed for. And in their exile, God brings them back and promises them there will be one coming who is the longed for son. But what happens is and God stops speaking for 400 years to his people. And for 400 years, the nation of Israel sat in longing. God, have you finally abandoned us this time? Did we finally blow it? And then finally, why Advent is so beautifully important is because God, after 400 years, did speak again. And when he spoke again, this time it wasn't for a shadowed longed-for son. It was to deliver the real longed-for son, Jesus Christ. And he comes to a virgin named Mary whose womb should not have borne life, and he gives it life. 
And in that baby is God in the flesh who does not stand far off from our longing, who does not stand far off from our brokenness, who does not stand far off hoping you can find some kind of joy in and of yourself. He says, no, I will step into this world. I will, the, the, the word will be made flesh. The light will come into this dark world and he will overcome it all. He will bear all the suffering. He will bear all the darkness. He will bear all the shame. He will take all of the sin of of his people and he will bring it on himself and he will die under its weight. Just as Hannah gave her son to the Lord, Mary will give her son to the purposes of the Lord and it will crush her soul as she watches her son be crushed for our iniquities. And then he rose again. And he says, I am the God who is over it all. I am the God who bore the weight of it all. I am the God who will make it all new. And all who find hope in me can have the longing of their past redeemed. The, the certainty that the longing you feel now is not in vain. And one day there will be a time when the passage of time will mean nothing. So will you this season. Become reacquainted with the God who is not afraid of your longing. With the God who is not afraid for you to share your hardship and struggle with him. Ask him for help. If you're here and you're crushed by the weight of your sin, ask him to forgive you in his son Jesus and he will and you will have a new life. And can you look with expectant hope that all of the suffering we endure in this life, all of the darkness that seems to be running rampant right now, all the things in our own life that seek to get our eyes fixed off of Jesus, ultimately are, have to bow their knee to the risen Jesus. And our longing is not without hope. Our suffering is not without purpose. This world is not the final answer. Christ stood and says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I am faithful and true, and I will return, not to bear the sin of the world, but to eagerly get those who are waiting for me, and I will make all things new. And between now and then, for my people, take heart, for behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Father in heaven, we come to you in the name of your Son. And oh God, I'm so thankful that we don't have to bear our longing on our own. I'm so thankful for a church body and church family that help remind me, because I so often can forget. And God, I pray that if there's anyone here who is being crushed in whatever way, in whatever way, by the pressures of this life, whether it's our own actions, things that have been done to us, whether it's the losses that we've encountered in life or just living in the midst of a broken world. Oh God, I pray that that longing would not cause us to lament out of bitterness, but cause us to go directly to you, the God who has overcome the world. And that we would cast our anxieties on you. We would bitterly plead, or I'm, I'm sorry, we, we would passionately plea, uh, present our petitions and requests to you. That we would ask you in humility because those who, who humble themselves before you, the word says, you will exalt. 
And may we rest as we wait for you to answer and minister to us, knowing that you are good, you are kind, you are great, you are true, and all your promises are certain. Oh, God, reacquaint us with that this year. In Jesus' name, amen.